Morning, church. I have the pleasure of reading two readings to you this morning. The first is Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The second reading is from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Was that me, Dan? I've got some nods and something. Can I look at you, Dan? Is that me? Oh, dear. 
If I pop that there, what, is that a good idea? Okay, let's do that. Good morning, everyone. Glad to be back with you. Hey, wasn't it good having Steve Connor open God's Word for us over the last couple of weeks as we enjoyed our World Missions Conference together? Uh, Steve Connor, as uh, you will know, was an American footballer. He was signed up to play American football. And if you were there at the interview on the Monday evening, you would have seen a short video clip of the sort of thing that he did in his position. It's a hard-hitting game. You have to wear pretty much full body armor under your uniform because they have such hard-hitting collisions on the field. Now, Steve was a Chicago Bear, and he had signed up a contract to play American football. He agreed the contract, and then he got on with the game. But I just, for fun, want you to imagine that his coach had come and spoken to him halfway through the season. And after that agreement had been made, he said to him, I tell you what, Steve, what I need you to do now is to play rugby. In fact, to make matters worse, um, he asks him not just to play rugby union, but league. And, I, and I, want, <laughs> I want you to imagine um, that the next season, he said, we're going to bring in some soccer players who are contracted to the team. It would get confusing, wouldn't it? We'd be wondering whose game would you then play? I know that for Australians, most of the time, of course, technically, it's all still football. But would it be possible to play? Whose rule book or playbook would you use and follow? when you've got NFL players and union players and league players and soccer players all on the pitch together? What game is being played when all those footy players play according to their own rules? And what about then if you started to invite in the basketballers and the netballers and the ballet dancers and the chess players? It would get confusing, would it not? Now, what I want us to see as I share this um, fun little imagining is that there is a playbook that we have been given together as God's people, and it is God's playbook, and it is called the Bible. And as we sought to do before Steve came along, we were, over the previous five weeks, trying to build a biblical ethic by which to live. And this last week, I have been at a gathering in Canberra called GAFCON, a gathering at which we were united. The theme was proclaiming Christ faithfully, and we looked together at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, which was enormously encouraging. One of the great reminders that we had from those talks is that we find our unity from God. He is the one who unites us in Christ by his revealed word. But if you've been anywhere in the media this week, you may have heard some stories. Um, stories exemplified by the one that I share with you from Anglican priest Matt Anstey in the Sydney Morning Herald this week, where he declared, uh, according to the title, and I quote, How dare these fundamentalist defectors question our faith? Have you seen some of the commentary? Matt has a faith, but from what I understand in reading his article, it is not a biblical faith. It is not faith according to God's playbook. And there are revisionists throughout the Anglican Church of Australia, indeed the Anglican communion around the world, 
who are leaving the playbook that God has given us and writing their own rules for play. And so as a result, the diocese of the Southern Cross has been formed. It is a lifeboat for faithful Anglicans with a view to the restoration and renewal of biblical Anglicanism in a context where some of the leadership has been making revisions. If you've received this week your weekly update from our church, uh, you may have seen that we attached a letter from Archbishop Kanishka Raffel. It's a really helpful read just to calibrate some of the reasoning behind the formation of this diocese. And for us, as Fig Tree Anglican Church, and for us as followers of Jesus, we want to play God's game His way. To honor Jesus Christ as the head of His church, and to sit under His word as our authority. Not to follow a pastor or a bishop who's bringing in his or her own rules of play. United under God's word, even as the bonds of fellowship may be becoming untied across our denomination. And so in God's timing, it is really good that we've come to the book of Ephesians. Because Ephesians is all about unity in Christ. Not a unity that we manufacture as people, but the unity that God has given his people under him. And so, and I know that for some of us amongst us, uh, ladies, I think, who went to the Women's Wollongong Conference, um, you've already had a, a, an introduction to Ephesians this week, so you get a double portion. Um, I want us to think about the big ideas that we're looking at across this series of six weeks. You can't miss the big one behind me, can you? Look what our amazing team has put together with this image of what is our big idea. By grace through faith. That's what we pick up in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. That we are saved by God's grace, received only through faith, and only then that we might respond as his workmanship for the good works that he's prepared for us to do. But the big idea for today's sermon is this, and this in a way encapsulates what Paul's seeking to achieve in writing the whole letter. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, all things united in heaven and earth under Messiah. Unity is God's gift to us. We cannot unite ourselves. And I'm going to pray that as we come to God's word together, he might bring unity to us in our thoughts and in our responses. Would you pray with me? Because this is the only way we can do it right. We need God's help. Our Father God, we thank you so much for gathering us together as your people, united under Christ, under Messiah. We know that we cannot do anything to bring ourselves together in our diversity, but rather you are the one who affects this through the power of your word and spirit in our lives. May we learn to play your game of life your way. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at, uh, look at this passage, uh, verses 1 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, under three headings. So the first one is this, it's him, him. Did you know that this uh, section that we've just had read for us is the longest verse that we have, um, as we understand it, received in the New Testament? 
because Paul is just pouring out his heart here. He's basically effusive about what it means to know Jesus. Verses 3 to 12. And every word in that sentence, every word in this letter, really every word in the Bible, uh, is ultimately about Jesus Messiah. He's the main character. And he's brought his people into this story in the most intimate way. He unites us as Anglicans, as followers of Jesus, as his church, both Jew and Gentile in him. And so we read at the very beginning of verse 1 here that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul has been sent. He's a man on a mission, and he is an ambassador who represents the King of Kings. No less than the will of the God of the universe he is fulfilling here, and he has a letter with God's seal. Paul is a Jewish man. Here he is sent by God and his son Jesus to this little gathering of faithful, holy Ephesians. And the message that he brings right at the beginning, verse 2, is this. It is a message of grace and peace to you from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God. We've encountered this idea in the Old Testament in the word chesed. In other words, loving kindness. That the nature of God in and of himself is that he gives and he gives in love. It is undeserved merit. For the studious amongst us who aspired as little ones always to get that 100% in the exam, he's the one who gives us 100%, but not because of what we wrote down, but because of his gift to us. Grace is gift, which means there's no room for bragging. There's no room for jealousy. And there's no room for presumption. God's gift to us brings peace with him. That is the effect of of his grace, that all mankind might be taken out from under the rightful wrath of God against those who fall short of his glory and come under the cover of his grace through Jesus. The cross of Jesus Messiah, bringing peace between man and God. And notice, from God, whom Paul calls both Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sent both by the Father and by the Son. And grace and peace with God has an outcome. And it's a rightful one. That God might be praised, verse 3. Praise God. Praise God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. God as Father deserves praise. Why? Well, because he blesses them. What does that mean? Are we to praise God for the blessings of health and wealth and education or reputation? I mean, we live in the most beautiful part of Australia, don't we? We live in Australia, the most beautiful country in the world, don't we? We can count our blessings every day. But such as these blessings are, these blessings that might bring happiness to our life's experience, this is not what we are to celebrate for the praise of God's glory. Ultimately, there is a blessing still, a blessing in the heavens, the joy of knowing God, the joy of knowing Him through the Lord Jesus. 
they are united to God. They are in relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. A bond of mutual love in the persons of the Godhead in whom they share. May I try something? Now you might be asking yourself, why am I saying they? Why am I not saying us? Well, because I believe that Paul here first addresses the Jew, then the Gentile. Coming to my second point, us, in verses 4 to 11. I believe that Paul here is addressing two different groups, two distinct groups. The us, or the we, who are the Jews, and the you, that we encounter later, who are the Gentiles, or the nations. If we went back to the Old Testament Hebrew words, we would find the words Israel and Goyim, which means nations. If I might just uh, share a little sentence that you may have heard before, how odd of God to choose the Jews. The response to which is not odd of God, Goyim, Anoyim. Why am I saying these things? Well, most of us are Gentiles. Some of us are Jews. I'm a bit of both. <laughs> I have Jewish and Gentile heritage. But so what? What does it matter about this distinction? Well, Paul makes the distinction. Have a look at verses 4 to 6. It says here, He chose us. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. The Jews were chosen in Messiah. How were the Jews in Messiah? Because God chose them. God's choice, not theirs. I remember the days when I was at school, and we used to play soccer at school, because I come from the UK. It was football. I'm wondering whether we might, Dan, make an adjustment. Can I grab the microphone there? Is that all right? Would you excuse me a sec? Sorry. chosen and you could want to be on one team as much as you liked but who made the choice it was the captain yes the captain of the team God makes the choice for those who will be on his team and what motivates God's choice in history for the Jews anything special about them it wasn't their playing skills it was his love for them it was his love God is love. God's love drives everything he does, both for Jew and Gentile. And God's will, God's favor, God's desire for these Jews under Messiah is that he wants to declare his people as holy. He chose them, not because they were holy, but because he wanted to declare them holy. Declare them as if they'd never sinned, just like God. Not that they were just like everyone. They were subject to temptation and gave into sin, but God would say, it is as if you had never sinned. And we shall see soon how God will declare this both for Jew and Gentile. And so that's his work of making people holy, declaring them to be holy. 
then he encourages a response from his people that they might be blameless to do our bit, if you like, to live as if they were holy. To live as if we were holy, to strive to be blameless. As it says later in chapter 5 of Ephesians, to walk in God's ways. In Galatians 5, to keep in step with his spirit. As the Apostle Peter said in his letter, in chapter 1, verse 1, to be holy as God is holy. To walk the talk. To strive to be blameless. Not a pretense. Not like an actor, like Jesus criticizes of the hypocrites. But rather to walk as a blameless person. Jew or Ephesian Gentile to walk Jesus' way. And what is the motivation to live his way? Well, it's because God is bringing everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth under Messiah. You see, this is the gift of God according to his mystery, that Jesus is Messiah and that unity comes for both Jew and Gentile under him. According to God's promise fulfilled in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, his son. We have a free lunch, folks. In Jesus' gift to us, the redemption price was paid at the cross by the blood of his son for each and every one of us. But it's not really a free lunch, is it? Because somebody always pays the price for a free lunch. And it was God's son's Jesus. The cost of God's grace is the blood of his son. And Israel had the promises of God from the beginning, but so did the nation, so did the goyim. God's promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, was to Abraham, to Avram, that he would be the father of many nations and that all would be invited. And the role of Israel, Isaiah 49, 7, was to shine a light of God's grace to the nations that they might see God as he is. And in fact, I believe that Paul is the one who picks up that ministry of Israel and takes on their vocation and seeks to fulfill it as he preaches the good news of Messiah to the nations. To what end? Have a look at verses 11 to 12. To the praise of God's glory that our hope in the Messiah might bring. We also, verse 11, have received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Messiah might bring praise to his glory. This is good news in Messiah, first for the Jew and for the Gentile. It is good news, isn't it? And we believe it. But it's hard news to share in our context. I mean, our world is all about individualism, isn't it? Our world is all about working out my own identity and then declaring it to be so. In fact, it's all about me. It's a struggle to keep from idolatry. It's a struggle to keep from immorality. It's a struggle to keep out injustice because we live in the most extraordinary place where we have education and we have wealth and we have health and boy, do we have entertainment. But actually, it was no different for Paul's audience. 
because since the times of Alexander the Great and the introduction of Hellenism, they had all those things too. They had the best education system in the known world, the best health system, the best entertainment, and the best... Um, I've forgotten what I left out, but the other thing as well. <laughs> and so it's hard for us to live differently. It was hard for them to live dif- differently too to confirm that their hope was in a resurrected Messiah to bring praise to God and they needed help and so do we. And very wonderfully, God has given this help to his people. This is according to the promise for Jew and for Gentile, but have a look with me at verses 13 to 14 because this is a point at which I think we see a bit of a shift. It's entitled, thirdly, you. You see, Paul was sent on God's mission as a Jewish man who proclaims God's word. He began with Barnabas amongst the Jewish people in Acts. Many repented and believed in Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, through God's grace. It was by grace that they were saved through faith. He, they, now you Gentiles in Ephesus, each playing a part in his mission. Have a look with me at verse 13 heard and believed. It says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him. See, God's purpose in Ephesians 1.10, we're told, is to bring all in heaven and on earth under Messiah. And one way in which God does that is by transforming people's lives. One way in which God does that is by gathering his people together in the manner in which we are gathered today. One way in which God does that is in living out the unity that we have in the diversity that he has given us to show his power for reconciliation. But today we see those things, transformation and gathering in unity, as a consequence of another thing, which is his mission. God's mission is is the preaching of the gospel which is heard and believed. You see what it says in verse 13? It says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, that is Jesus. That is the mission. And that comes as a confirmation of their and our conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit You see in verse 12 it goes on to say that you were sealed. You were also sealed with the promised spirit. If you remember from reading Acts 19, which is when Paul rocked up to Ephesus, he came to Ephesus and he asked the people there who were believers in the way, have you received the Holy Spirit? And what did they say to him? Never heard of it. (laughs) And do you remember how Paul went on and it came apparent that the the, the gospel, the good news that they had heard was that of John for repentance of sin. They'd not come across the gospel of the Lord Jesus, of Yeshua Messiah. And so when Paul began to teach them the truths about who Jesus was, they then heard the message and they believed it. And in Acts 19.6, we see how the Spirit visibly came upon them, just like it did for the disciples in Acts 2. We hear that there were tongues and prophecy. And the Spirit is like the seal on the human heart. The Spirit is the one who gives us assurance of our conviction of Jesus. Confident to know, rather like a brand on a sheep, that we belong to the great shepherd. 
That's the work of the Spirit testifying to our spirits in us, is it not? That is how we know and believe. And we're told again in verse 14 that he is the guarantee of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Uh, Sarah and I, of course, were preparing to go to Indonesia to serve the Lord. That never eventuated. But we did learn some Indonesian language. And one of the things we learned is that uh, in Indonesia, in Bahasa Indonesia, there's a distinction between two pronouns. The pronoun we and the pronoun we. And, and I was like trying to get my head around this, but let me give you an example. If, um, let's say that Shane and I were having a conversation, but we weren't having a conversation with you, I'd say that Shane and I were, we were having a conversation. Kami. That's we, but not you. But let's say that then Shane and I finished our conversation and wanted to bring you into the conversation. What about if it was a conversation between we, us, all of us, including you? Well, that would then become kita. So there's a different, that's quite helpful, isn't it? I don't know why we haven't got that in the English language, but we haven't. But I think what's going on here is that Paul then shifts in verse 14 to say, us, we, Jews, and you, Gentiles, and now verse 14, we together, Kita, he is the guarantee of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. That is both Jew and Gentile under Messiah may have the certainty of eternity. What a profound way to finish for the praise of the glory of God. So what does that mean for us as we work through the first few verses of Ephesians and think about what it means to play God's game his way? Well, I want to share a few ideas on reflection about what it means to be playing for eternity. God wrote the Bible by his spirit through his chosen authors. And his word is without error. It points us consistently to the person of Jesus Messiah. God's son is the one who holds time and eternity in his hands. And he holds heaven and earth for all eternity until he returns in his hands. And this is good news for both Jew and Gentile because it is by grace that we have been saved through faith that no one may boast. And that is what's going on as we await the return of the Lord Jesus. But I have to say now, brothers and sisters, we're on a battlefield. A little later in Ephesians 6, we're going to hear about how we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. And so it should be no surprise to us that when God has given us the Bible as our playbook for life and he's given us his spirit as our coach, that we might not sit over the word of God, but sit under it and continue to be taught by his spirit and learn from him and one another, that there will be those who shy away and get it wrong. Let's face it, we've all got it wrong, right? In some way, shape or form. And we continue to be refined by the Spirit of God. But this letter of the Ephesians reminds Paul's readers and us of God's grace, that salvation from and forgiveness for sins and peace living under him come because we have received his grace. And the unity that God has given us together is for Christ Messiah and his glory for both Jew and Gentile. It's not constructed by people. It's not a unity that we can fabricate. Even when sometimes we want to embrace diversity as we define it, God tells us what true unity is, 
and what embracing real diversity looks like. And so the unity that we want to have is living out a biblical ethic in response to grace through faith, knowing that we have been saved and transformed and gathered and united and are on his mission. And this is why we've invested our time and our testimonies, our talents and our treasures in our World Missions Conference. Hasn't it been a wonderful week? I mean, it felt like it went on forever. (laughs) But it has been quite wonderful. And yet every week we're on mission, preaching the gospel in the things that we say and the things that we pray, the things that we do. That is what he has given us to do. And this gospel of his son, Yeshua, of his son, Jesus, is the gospel or the good news, or in the Greek word, the euangelion, from which we get the word evangelism. This is the growth of his church. It finds his foundation The foundation of the growth of God's church is found in this message, in the context of mutual love relationships where Jesus is for everyone. Now, I'm nearly um, at my sixth month of having been with you now. It's it's about to come up in about a week's time. And uh, I've been very grateful to God for the wonderful ministry team um, that, that you have here at Fig Tree Anglican Church. I've been so encouraged by each and every team member there has been an issue of getting our household in order. And over the weeks ahead, there'll be a few things to share with you. Um, There's been a function of working alongside the ministry team and the wardens and the parish council. But I want to alert you to the fact that we're putting an advertisement out there next week for a new team member, our next generation minister. That is, we have wonderful team members in the persons of Ruth and Josh, for our youth, and Jenny for our children's ministry, and some of our terrific lay leaders looking after our young adults. What we need is somebody on lead team to whom they can report to enable those layers in the pipeline of leadership and discipleship to be properly cared for and to be properly equipped so that in turn we can equip the saints for works of service. That's all of us in God's church here. And so firstly, I'd love you to pray for that person, that we would get somebody of God's choosing. Secondly, I'd like you to prepare. Now, I know that we've been giving to mission, and I'm stoked by the fact that we're nearly halfway for our target in raising $112,000 for our mission partners, which is very important. But in terms of getting our house in order, I'm going to be starting a, a commitment series in October where I'm going to be looking at all those domains with you from the Scriptures our time, our talents, our testimonies, and our treasures in terms of investing in the future. But this, this role is really just to get our house in order so that we're leveraging for the future under God with the people that we have already. So can I ask you to pray and to prepare financially and in terms of your testimonies and in terms of our talents for what the Lord may hold ahead? We've got a wonderful meeting at the beginning of every month of the lead team and the parish council coming together where we are praying and seeking to discern God's future for our church. This is the first step in getting ourselves the foundation. Does that sound like a good way forward? I'm soliciting your prayers and I'm soliciting your investment for the future. Secondly, I want to say that each and every one of us must make the preaching of the gospel absolutely core in our lives. 
There are some amongst us who are the big evangelists. I stand by this. And I'm get to this in the talk coming up on Ephesians 4. But every one of us in some way, shape, or form is a little evangelist, aren't we? I mean, every one of us has been impacted by the gospel. So my challenge to each and every one of us is to keep thinking about, because God has declared us to be holy, what it means to be blameless in his sight, especially when it gets harder in our culture and we're getting criticized for doing so. This culture in which we live is not that different to the culture in which Paul lived. And in fact, Paul was in chains at the time he wrote to the Ephesian church. But this message of Jesus is our mission for each and every one of us. And I want to say this, that Jesus is for every Jew. And Jesus is for every Gentile. And Jesus is for every nation. And in the context of some of the changes that are coming up and some of the challenges coming up in response to the gathering of Gafcon down in Canberra and what will play out through our media and through our church life together, I want to say that Jesus is for every man and Jesus is for every woman and Jesus is for every child and Jesus is for every straight person and Jesus is for every same-sex attracted person. Jesus is for everyone. But aren't you thankful that he didn't leave you where he found you? Because I know I am. The power of the gospel in each of our hearts to transform us and take us from where we've been to where we're going, which is to be prepared and restored in all fullness to meet the Lord Jesus face to face. What an extraordinary outworking of God's grace in us individually and amongst us together. So would you pray with me that he would keep growing us for his glory Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus under whom all things will be gathered together in heaven and on earth. Thank you for this game of life that we play. Not a futile board game, but a real lifetime. Not rugby, not NFL, not football, not education, not health, not entertainment, but rather you have set us apart for the enriching work of being your agents of transformation in human lives through your gospel. It is this gospel that we believe. It is this gospel that we speak. And by the power of your spirit in us, it is this gospel in which we are assured that Jesus is for everyone. And we thank you for this privilege and praise you and ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.